Hey everyone, this is Will, and welcome to this brand new and exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Now, as a Christian myself, since I gave my life to Christ, now one message I remember clearly the day I was born again, we always believe that the message of Christianity supposed to serve the purpose of unification. Over the years that I travel extensively across the continent, that whenever I get the chance to meet the brothers and sisters in Christ, we always talk about the goodness and the blessing of God. However, for some parts of the world today, religion plays a such a significant role. But meanwhile, based on the recent article that in the country of Ethiopia, Christianity seems to facing more obstacles than ever. It's instead of unifying the country and the people, according to some authors, that the religion of Christianity, it's actually tearing the country apart. So that's why today it's my great honor to invite Andrew to court. And Andrew holds a doctorate in religious and practical ethics from the University of Chicago. He has taught ethics public theology, and Ethiopian studies at Wheaton College. And most importantly, he's the author of the forthcoming book, Why Pray? Seven Practices for Flourishing on the Edge of Faith. And we're going to talk to Andrew about his book and the article. Andrew, a welcome to The Amazing Piece. Absolutely delighted to be here, Will. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome, Andrew. Now, again, initially when I discovered you, because this amazing article, and also it's so interesting, as I mentioned before, um, that we need to talk about. Your article is entitled, Christian Nationalism is Tearing Ethiopian Apart. Just by reading this article, as I mentioned before, we know Christianity is supposed to be a mechanism to unify people, you know, across the continent. Given the fact that today, all kinds of religious affiliations are trying to bring the message of hope and the message of unification, unity uh, to the, uh, the believers. Can you tell us what is happening today in the country of Ethiopia? And why would you entitle this article that Christian nationalism is actually dividing this country up? Can you tell us a little bit more? Thanks, Will. It's a complex question, and it requires great humility. I want to start by saying that this was um, a short article. It was actually a thousand words longer than the editor wanted it to be, uh, but still a short article, and I cut a lot out. So we need to be aware of oversimplification and generalization. I want to say that for starters. Mm. You mentioned that I'm an ethicist, and ethics is about the study of good and evil. Mm. It's about the study of what we love and what we should resist. And so ethics really goes to the heart of human nature. Mm. And we see throughout history, we see today, and we see in ourselves that human beings are hungry for power. Mm. Now, power often takes the form of trying to um, have some kind of superior status mm. over others, uh, maybe trying to have uh, more financial wealth over others, or maybe to have more political control over others. And when we look back on the Christian movement, Will, we see for the first 300 years of the Jesus movement that Christians were 
persecuted. They were marginalized. They were insulted. Mm. They were very much a, a critical marginal movement in the Roman Empire mm. challenging power. Mm. Why? Because Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. This That's is a right. very paradoxical invitation because we know that the cross was a symbol of execution mm. in the Roman Empire. It was a symbol of the loss of power. But getting into the fourth century, we saw um, Emperor Constantine uh, officially converted the empire to Christianity, and he very cleverly turned the cross into a military symbol. Mm. This would appear on Roman shields and on Roman flags. And very quickly, Christianity was colonized, it was co-opted, was corrupted into a tool of power for the Roman Empire. Mm. Now we see something very similar happening in Ethiopia. Ethiopia converted to Christianity right around the time of Emperor Constantine. Um, and we, we can't get into all of the historical details here. I try to lay out some of it in my article. Um, but I think that this is important. The first emperor who converted Ethiopia to Christianity previously claimed to be the son of the war god, Maharem. Mm. Um, this was a South Arabian god of war. After he converted... He claimed to be the servant of Christ. But if you compare the inscriptions and documents from this king before he converted and after he converted, the pattern is very clear. Hmm. Christianity was being used as an instrument of power and conquest, hmm. just like we see in Rome with Emperor Constantine. And throughout the centuries, this pattern of using Christianity to try to mobilize power has continued. We've seen this in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. This is one of the most ancient traditions of Christianity in the entire world mm. and uh, very, very central to Ethiopian identity. But in the last hundred years or so, we've seen the rise of the evangelical or Pentecostal movement in Ethiopia. Mm. Uh, this is a complicated story. I talk about it in my article. But in the last uh, four years with the new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who is himself a Pentecostal, we see evangelical Christianity entering into the public sphere and increasingly gaining prominence and access to power. Mm. Now, we know, Will, that power tears apart. Mm. Power is competitive. That's right. It's a zero-sum game. What can I get from you? Uh, how can I stand on you to get what I want? It creates suspicion. It creates hostility. Um, it creates violence. And mm -hmm. that's that's what we're seeing in Ethiopia today. We're seeing uh, civil war. Uh, Ethiopia has the largest number of internally displaced people in the world, over 5 million. We're seeing uh, a million of our Ethiopian sisters and brothers in famine. That means they don't have food to eat, and many are starving to death. Uh, we're seeing a very grave crisis, and a lot of this is being wrapped up in religious language mm. that God is somehow creating a revival in Ethiopia that's going to restore the country's greatness through this leader, the prime minister, and those who are around him and who are loyal to him. And this is why we see Christian nationalism tearing Ethiopia apart 
rather than unifying. We know that the message of unity, uh, we know that the message of unity in the New Testament is actually very rooted in diversity. Mm. Um, the book of Revelation says every tribe, tongue, nation, and people joins in the Song of the Lamb. Paul says that there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, but mm. all are one in Christ. Um, the body of Christ is not one part. It is a body uh, with many functions. Um, Paul is very clear about this. So what we're seeing here um, is not the flourishing of the diversity of the Christian community for the common good, but we're increasingly seeing grabs for power that are rooted in this imperial history. And um, again, my article was too short, but what I am suggesting is we need to return to the prophetic tradition of Christianity, um, the Hebrew prophets as well, and also the best teachings of Prophet Muhammad in the Quran, um, and the best teachings of the democratic tradition, mm. we need to return to um, this vision of the equal dignity of each person as a neighbor made in the image of God, and thus create an inclusive, pluralistic society under the rule of law in which the diversity of Ethiopia's people can flourish hmm. and this means taking up our cross like jesus said uh surrendering that hunger for power and following jesus together together with our orthodox sisters and brothers together with our Pente pentecostal sisters and brothers together with our muslim sisters and brothers together with our non-religious sisters and brothers for the sake of what paul calls the common good hmm. You know, Andrew, it's so interesting that I on once on one hand I agree with you that because when it comes to wor the word power, now I guess people are hungry for power, you know, in all capacity. People will love to have power in their hands so that they're able to exercise all sorts of power in order to make decisions or in order to create influence or impact either negative or positive over others. But meanwhile, again, I want to draw something uh, uh, back to the article. Andrew, this is something you wrote. It stood out in, in, a, in a magnificent way. It says, based on the estimation, 98% of Ethiopians say religion is very important to them. And, you know, we always say, I guess, among many countries in Africa, religion has always been very important and significant for the citizens. But based on what you said, if the current leader is using the religion, trying to control over the citizens... What, what is the real purpose of being religious in Ethiopia today? So in other words, if we know that the government or the leader is only using religion as excuse to protect itself or to protect the power, how does that build credibility among the citizens? Don't you think that this is such a mechanism to distort the meaning of religion in a sense? How would you explain that? Yeah, power always distorts religion, Will. Um, it always twists religion and corrupts religion. Uh, we see that 
all throughout history. We see that in the United States. Mm. We see that in Ethiopia. We, we see that in Russia today. Um, uh, power turns religion into a tool, into a servant mm. of the state for the sake of status, control, legitimacy, etc. And And here I want to make an important distinction, Will. Christian nationalism turns Christian faith into a servant of the state. Hmm. Christian patriotism uh, embraces Christianity and service for others, whether that means um, affirming just policies of the state or critiquing unjust policies of the state. Um, one is a servant to the state, one is a servant to Christ, whether that means um, affirmation or critique of the state. Mm. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, people can be very religious and still be confused. Mm. And please be, be very clear here, Will. I'm not saying that um, all Ethiopian Christians are confused. There mm. are many, many beautiful, exemplary, uh, truly inspiring and humbling Christian sisters and brothers at Ethiopia um, from whom we have much to learn. I have spent much of my life not teaching Ethiopians, but listening to them mm. and, and being present with them in their homes and in their churches and in their schools and in their offices. Um, there is a beautiful Christian faith in Ethiopia, but if we're not careful, our faith can be co-opted and I think your your viewers will be familiar with C.S. Lewis. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. Our, our brother C.S. Lewis said that um, uh, there can be very bad men, but bad religious men are the worst of all. That's right. Um, and so I think that this was the really the first temptation that Jesus faced, Will. You know, Jesus goes out into the desert. He's hungry. He's lonely. And he's young. Mm. He's ambitious. Just like you and me, he wants to be important. And what is what is the the tempter, the devil do? He takes him to the mountaintop, and he says, "Look, here's all of the kingdoms of the world. I will give you all of this if you will bow down and worship me." Mm. Of course, Jesus resists that temptation, and what does he do? Well, he turns around and he teaches his followers a prayer, and this is in my book. Mm. He says, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Yes, Satan says, all this will be yours. Jesus says, no, yours, God's, is the kingdom and the power mm. and the glory forever. This is this is a prayer of surrender. Uh, this is a prayer of divestment from the capture of power by the state. It's a disavowal of giving our loyalty to political leaders instead of Jesus himself. So... When religion or Christianity loses sight of this fundamental loyalty to the kingdom of God, which is not the same as any human kingdom, and when we lose sight of this loyalty to Jesus and give that loyalty to a political leader, we are in serious trouble, and mm. that's when we begin to see the corruption of faith. That's right. That's what, Andrew, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, again, let's go back to the article, something you wrote. Again, you know, I want to encourage our viewers and listeners to go online to read 
Andrew's article because, again, not only it's insightful, but also it serves as a good reminder that as we walk with faith on the daily basis. Again, Andrew, this is something you wrote. Ethiopian people are deeply religious, and this zealous secularization was destined to fall from the first bullet, and it did. You know, if we can fast forward, Andrew, I think today, to, to be realistic, our faith in Christ is being tested on the daily basis. Because we do have what we called, I guess, some uh, 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 religious experts or a Christian leader called noises or chatterboxes outside. So in other words, they're trying to pull us away from this faith clinging to Christ. But on the other hand, those noises or those chatterboxes are so unavoidable. So, Andrew, I want you to help us to understand if Ethiopian people are still deeply religious, how can they still believe in Christ and also understanding that the the meaning or the purpose of religion is being misrepresented or mis being interpreted by the political power today? Can you help us to understand? Human beings are vulnerable creatures, Will. That's right. Uh, we're, we're vulnerable physically. You can attack me. You can kill me. Mm. Um, COVID has reminded us of how vulnerable we are. Mm. It can be these invisible particles floating through the air on our breaths that could take your life or your mother or father's life, and you may not even know it. Uh, many of us have lost loved ones. Mm. We're financially vulnerable. Uh, we worry about having enough. Uh, we worry about getting more. I talk about this in my book again. Mm. Uh, we we want more. We live in a highly consumeristic society. Ethiopia is a society that has historically wrestled with extreme poverty. Mm. Uh, we're also vulnerable about our status. Mm. This is about identity. Mm. Who am I? Where do I belong? Who recognizes me? Who gives me a sense of dignity? These are fundamental, Will, they go to the heart of being human. And when a leader promises us salvation, uh, I will keep you safe. Mm. I will give you more. I will make you respected. Ooh, it becomes very difficult to resist that temptation. That's right. Now, what has Donald Trump said? Uh, saving America. Mm making America great again. Mm. This is a promise that we human beings love. Oh, he's going to keep me safe. Oh, he's going to make me wealthy. Oh, he's going to make me important. Let me get behind that. Mm. Now, I say in my article that Abi Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia, follows the prosperity gospel. This is a very powerful and popular teaching in the United States, in That's Ethiopia, right. in Africa, or in, in Asia, many, many places in the world. And it says... If you follow your leader and you don't ask questions, you will be healthy, wealthy, and you will win. Mm. We humans are vulnerable to these desires, Will. And so it's no surprise that as vulnerable creatures, we are very, very susceptible to temptation when our leaders start promising 
granting us salvation. Mm. And this is where we, as followers of Jesus, need to remember that our salvation is found in Jesus alone, not in any political leader and the, the power or the money or the status that they can offer us. But if we're not careful, Will, we'll say, I'm afraid. I'm afraid for my safety. I'm afraid for my wealth. I'm afraid for my dignity, especially in a society like Ethiopia, where there has been extreme violence, mm. extreme poverty, profound questions of identity, of belonging, of citizenship, community. People can very, very easily say, well, if this leader promises me that I'll be safe, that I'll be uh, wealthier, that I'll have more status, it's very hard to resist. So this this requires a kind of laser-sharp focus on the centrality of Jesus as our Savior. Um, there is no other name under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. That's right. Um, the New Testament says. So um, this is how I see it. You know, Andrew, again, as a believer myself, and we know that in the Bible— that Jesus warned us many times, and of course, in throughout the uh, Old Testament as well, not to idolize or worship any false god. So in other words, again, going back to what you said, regarding any leaders in the U.S. or across the continent, that once we abandon the belief that God supposed to be the center of our life, or God supposed to be the ultimate uh, decision maker for our life, once we relinquish the idea, everything within our lives is going to become worse and worse. I'm not saying that because God is Harry Potter. I'm not saying God is, is looking forward uh, to, to seeing our vulnerability. It's because that he's saddened by our human incapability or, or saddened by our human uh, uh, distraught. You know, but anyway. But also, well, Andrew... In the article, you mentioned the year of 2018 represented a major turning point in Ethiopia's religious history and public life. Can you help us to understand what exactly happened in 2018 and why was that a major turning point in terms of religious history and the public life? And then we're going to get to uh, uh, the chance to talk about your upcoming uh, new book. So go ahead. In 2014, we began to see very, very serious protest movements in Ethiopia against mm. the repressive nature of the Ethiopian government. It was called the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. It's a long mm. name, EPRDF. Mm. Um, these were very serious public protests against injustice, against violence, against mass arrests. And unfortunately, what we saw was that the government clamped down even more. We saw thousands of people getting killed, tens of thousands of people being jailed. Mm. Uh, I can tell you, Will, that I have never lived in a country where the people were so afraid of their own government. Mm. This was very heartbreaking. Mm. We saw nationwide states of emergency in Ethiopia. Uh, it was a very dire situation. We began to fear that civil war was coming. Uh, we began to fear that something like the Rwandan genocide may be coming. Mm. These protests got so severe that the, the prime minister, his name is Haile Mariam Dessalane, he resigned. 
Um, and a new prime minister was appointed by the then Ethiopian government. Mm. And his name was Abiy. I already mentioned him. Mm. Now, Abiy was pretty unique because he was the first um, evangelical ruler of Ethiopia. Uh, Haile Mariam Desalegn was also Protestant, but that's a complex conversation mm. that we can we can we can leave out for the second. Um, Abiy was the first evangelical leader of Ethiopia. Um, he's an Oromo leader. This is the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia, um, and there are serious questions about um, Oromo identity in Ethiopia. To make a long story short, many people began to look towards Abiy as a kind of savior for the nation. We've, mm. we've already been talking about this. Mm. Um, people said, save our country. He was called a new Moses. He was called a new David. Mm. Abiy himself announced himself as the seventh king of Ethiopia. Now, again, this is all about context, but what he was, what he was uh, kind of alluding to there was that he was the new kind of ruler of the Ethiopian empire that would restore Ethiopia's greatness. Mm. Now, I just mentioned that when we feel vulnerability, um, we can fall prey to uh, seduction. Mm. Abi made lots of promises to um, make Ethiopia prosperous. I mentioned he's a prosperity gospel follower. He promised to unify the country. Um, he promised many things, and many people uh, became very, very excited. And Abi, it, it was called Abi Mania, Will, um, this kind of ecstatic, um, overwhelming optimism about what this leader could do for Ethiopia and its future. Um, and, and what began to unfold was we saw that the country... Uh, started following the old patterns of the previous regime, mm. um, increasing authoritarian patterns, the elevation of extremist religious leaders who were giving genocidal speeches, Will, uh, calling their ethnic enemies demons, mm. weeds, cancers, uh, dogs. Now, Will, we know where this language goes. It goes towards genocidal violence. That's it right. In Rwanda. It happened in Bosnia. It happened in many contexts. Uh, this is what history teaches us. There's no surprise here. Um, and this is what we see happening in Ethiopia today. So mm. this man who was kind of elevated in 2018 as a savior figure for Ethiopia has increasingly become, I'm sad to say, a dictator in Ethiopia again. Um, and in the name of unity, we see the country being torn apart as extremist voices are elevated. Violence increases, civil wars happening. Um, many, many millions of people have lost their homes. So this is a decisive turning point, Will. We don't know how long it will last. Um, I do not believe in violent revolution, to be very clear. I believe in uh, democratic government um, and election. Mm. Um, but we don't know how long this will last, and the future is very concerning right now. But this, this started unfolding. Uh, it didn't start, but it, it began to really develop in 2018. And this will be a time that historians will study for a long time to come. And I think, Andrew, you're right, because, again, if we look at the word democracy today, it doesn't just mean giving the power back to people, but also to find a way to allow religion, social agenda, political changes all these key elements coexist at the same time 
without interrupting one another or without causing innocent lives, you know, to be the sacrifice of the end result. Now, Andrew, again, I know you're very busy, but I'm very interested in talking about your forthcoming new book. It's called Why Pray? Seven Practices for Flourishing on the Edge of Faith. Now, can you help us to understand? I mean, as a Christian myself, Andrew, I want to be honest. I pray on the daily basis. And I know I pray to the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And I know that people, um, you know, regardless what religious background that you're coming from, we all pray in the middle of the crisis. And we all pray, you know, for our family members and for our future, etc. But what is your purpose to write this book, even to say seven practices for flourishing on the edge of faith? Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Many thanks, Will. Many thanks. Um, I think that this conversation has contextualized the heart of this book. Christianity is in crisis Mm. in the United States and in Ethiopia in Russia, in Ukraine, and in other contexts. Many people are asking, is there anything left? Mm. Or is it all political? Mm. Um, Is it all identitarian? Is it about being white? Is it about being from some ethnic group? Um, Is it about power? Mm. And I wanted to write a book that would introduce people to a vision of faith rooted in Jesus that shows a different and better way. And this book is rooted in the prayer of Jesus, Will. And I try to unpack why I think that this prayer is so brilliant Mm. and goes to the very heart of Jesus' spirituality and shows us a pathway to a mature human flourishing in which we can be fully alive as human persons in our world. And let me try to outline it for you really, really quickly. Mm. Jesus taught a prayer to a wildly diverse crowd of people at the very beginning of his public movement. Well, uh, we had people from urban centers and from rural places. Uh, We had people who were demonized, um, who were physically sick and disabled. Uh, We had men and women. We had uh, locals and foreigners. Everybody was there. And Jesus gives this prayer, and it has seven movements. And what I'm suggesting is that these seven movements are connected. Mm. and they're taking us somewhere. And I'm suggesting that there's a question at the heart of humanity behind each one of these seven movements of prayer. So the first is, who is God? Hmm. And Jesus teaches us to talk to God as our father or our parent. I call this a practice of divine belovedness. Hmm. God is the one who says, Will, you are my beloved child. I delight in you. Amen. Andrew, you are my beloved child. I delight in you. But will if we're not too if we're not careful we can get too comfortable with God, and so Jesus takes us to the next question: How should we talk about God? And He teaches us to pray, "Hallowed be Your name." Mm. I call this a practice of radical reverence, mm. and I show all throughout the Bible that humans ask to know God's name. That's right. And God doesn't God doesn't give a name. In fact, He says, "My name is beyond understanding." Right. And we see people falling on their faces to the dust. We see people being reconciled with their enemies. We see people learning that they cannot control Mm. God. They learn radical reverence. But if we're not careful, Will, radical reverence can make us passive Mm. 
and only deconstruct false religion. So the next question is, what do you want? And Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come on earth. That's right. I call this a practice of prophetic imagination. This is the work of the kingdom of God. And mm. the kingdom in Jesus' teaching, um, it really has five markers. I describe them in terms of countercultural love, a mutual relationship, not relationships of hierarchy, but mutual equitable relationship, um, everyday work, mm. uh, nonviolent witness. There's several of these. I can't get into all of them. <laughs> but uh, but we'll, if we're not careful serving the kingdom, again, we can become too lofty. We can think that we're going to build the kingdom and that we're messiahs. We're not. That's right. So Jesus, so Jesus takes us to another question, how much is enough? And he teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Mm. Our daily bread is enough. That's right. Now, this is a practice of radical trust. I call it a practice of subversive simplicity. It leads to trust. Um, it leads to empathy. It leads to interdependent living. Mm. But if we're not careful, Will, we think that we're all sitting around a happy table and everything's fine. But we know that that's not true. That's right. So Jesus asks next, how do we begin again? Mm. He teaches us, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. Forgiveness is how we begin again when we hurt each other. That's right. And I be believe that forgiveness is the choice to prioritize people over pain. It's the choice to let go of failure and to hold on to the other person as a precious child of God, as a beloved neighbor. Mm. Um, and so Jesus launches a global movement, Will, of forgiveness. Jesus' final words to his disciples are, it says, if you forgive anyone their sins, their sins are forgiven. That's right. And he tells them to go out across the whole world and launch this global network of forgiveness. But Will, as you know, forgiveness doesn't solve all of our problems. If we're That's not right. careful, it can kind of sugarcoat our problems and not get to the roots of our aggression. So the next question that Jesus asks is, can violence save us? Hmm. And Jesus teaches us to pray, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from mm -hmm. evil. Now, Will, if you study the Gospels, temptation in the teachings of Jesus really has to do with the use of violence. Mm. Uh, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus tells Peter, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. And what was the temptation? It was to use violence to try to protect Jesus to try to save the Savior. Hmm. And of course, we see that Peter falls for this temptation. That's right. He wasn't He wasn't ready. He tries to use violence to save, to save the Savior, and it doesn't work. In fact, Jesus ends up healing the ear of Malchus, the man that Peter had tried to behead. But Jesus gives us this practice that I call premeditated nonviolence. Get ready for high stress. Hmm. Trouble is coming. Conflict is coming. So get ready now and prepare when you're in those high-stress situations so you can stay calm, so you can stay centered, so you can stay peaceful and make peace in these situations. Mm. I call this sticking the landing, mm. uh, using that gymnastic metaphor. But there's one last movement of this prayer, Will. Who gets the power and prestige? You know, Will, we can follow Jesus. We can 
love the kingdom of God. We can reverence his name. We can enjoy daily bread. We can forgive each other. We can become nonviolent, but we can still think that it's all about us and our ego. Mm. Can't we? And so Jesus teaches us to pray. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Mm-hmm. I call this a practice of, of ultimate surrender. Mm. Now, Will, you know, we all, we want to be important people, don't we? We want to be influential. That's right. Uh, you know, one of the most famous business books in recent years was called Good to Great. We want to be great. That's right. Uh, make America great again. Make Ethiopia great again. Make Andrew great again. Uh, build a kingdom. Get that glory. We call it prestige, status, clout, popularity, likes, virality. Uh, we like winning. Jesus teaches us to let go of this, mm. to surrender it, to say, nope, it's not mine. Kingdom, not mine. Power, not mine. Glory, not mine. It's yours. And I believe that this practice leads us into surrender, that we don't have to face losing anything, Will. I have nothing to prove and I have nothing to lose because I've already given it to God. So whether you take my life or you insult me, I'm okay. Um, And this takes us back to the beginning because when we say yours, we're saying it to the one who calls us beloved, to our father. So that's what my book is all about, Will. I think, Andrew, you know, on one side, it's so uplifting. Again, I have to say that for so many years that when we pray... According to the Lord's Prayer, I guess most of us, we have never approached the prayer this way. But until you make the home run regarding this surrender, and I think it's difficult. You know, one um, minister that I listened to before, it says, too often we tend to play the role of God. So in other words, we would love to, uh, how can I say, over-empower ourselves and so that we are trying to prove that we are capable of handling God's mission. But in reality, God is looking for imperfection so that we are able to being shaped and challenged throughout the process. Now, Andrew, I want to wrap up our I want to wrap up our conversation with something more tangible to what's happening in the US today. That again, it looks like this political news regarding this Roe versus Wade, this Supreme Court decision. Again, I don't have time to get to this uh, uh, this political debate or this political um, historical, uh, 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 how can I say, controversy. But my question to you, Andrew, is as a Christian, as believers today in the U.S., how should we stand firm on our principle, on our Christian value even though we might have a disagreement with oppositions or with debaters, but how should we, from this Christian value, protect ourselves? Again, going back to your book, be more practical when we are trying to flourish on the edge of faith. I would say that we need to be pro-life from womb to tomb. Mm. Babies should be safe in their mother's wombs. But babies should be safe when they come out of their mother's wombs. Mm. Do they have food to eat? Do they have a place to live? Do they have health care? Do they have access to justice? Are their mothers safe? Mm. Are their mothers given the care that they need? Now, look, life is messy. 
Mm. And we have structural injustice in the United States rooted in our history, just like Ethiopia, just like China, just like Russia. Every society has this problem. Mm. Um, and those people who say pro-life, but don't care about what happens to babies and women after birth are not pro-life. Mm. They're pro-birth. We need to be for the whole life of every person. And this means uh, a new commitment to responsibility, Will. Mm. Uh, this means a new commitment to uh, public policy that serves the holistic needs of the human person, of the human family, of community, especially in the midst of poverty, injustice. Of course, we could get into the complexity of rape cases, mm. but we need to be able to deal with this and care for the well-being of our of our sisters who have been abused and treated in a horrific manner. Um, so if we're only trying to score political points, well, we're not flourishing. That's we're right. We're not fully alive. We're not blooming uh, and blossoming. And so I would say today we need to rediscover a holistic vision of human flourishing that cares for the whole person, that cares for structural justice, um, and that cares for debate. Mm. There's going to be disagreement, Will, when we talk about ethics. Remember at the very beginning, I said ethics is the study of good and evil, of what we love and what we should resist. This is complex stuff. Mm. And so we're going to have a lot of disagreements. So we need to learn how to disagree well. Um, and that really begins by listening. Um, and I would say that we should start by listening to women in our community who are vulnerable, um, who are economically disadvantaged, who may have been um, sexually abused. Um, we should start with listening um, and recognizing complexity and learning how to dialogue instead of simply denouncing one another. Um, the Bible says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. I think especially people like me, white men, or white Protestant men, we need to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Um, having said that, Will, I really want to thank you for letting me speak on your show. Um, thank you for your very insightful and critical questions. Andrew, the pleasure is all mine. Again, not only that, I thoroughly, I'm sure our viewers and listeners feel the same, enjoy the conversation, not only about this Christian nationals in Ethiopia, but also we are more fascinated and dying to read about your new book. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to Andrew Decor. Andrew holds a doctorate in religious and political ethics from the University of Chicago, and he has taught ethics, public theology, and Ethiopian studies at Wheaton College. And I strongly encourage everyone to go online to look or connect with Andrew, especially dive into his new book, Why Pray? Seven Practices for Flourishing on the Edge of Faith. Again, Andrew, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you so much for sharing and also uh, and all those giving us this encouragement and uplifting Christian love messages. Help us to follow Christ faithfully and also to watch over every single step that we take as we uh, go each day with the Lord. Again, Andrew, thank you so much 